Good morning. Praise the Lord. The Lord is good, isn't he? Do you sense the presence of the Lord today? I sure do. God is so good to us. It's very exciting today because today is part four of our series, Stuff Christians Do. And Scott has ministered on, what, do you remember the first thing he talked about? Yes, baptism. And then he talked about giving. And then we learned more about communion. And I loved his title for that was Mutiny in a Meal. I loved that title. And today we're going to dive into worship, right? The practice of worship and what that means and what that looks like. And Debbie Fink is going to share an amazing insight in a little bit. So be ready for me to call you up for that. And then we're going to end the service today. We're going to apply all of the things that we've learned, and we are going to worship God with our whole heart. And it's going to be the perfect way to end our gathering together. So if you close your eyes with me, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in awe of you, in awe of your goodness, in awe of your mercy, thankful for your spirit that guides us and comforts us and teaches us. And Lord, we lay down all distractions and preconceived notions, and we lay down our circumstances and the hard things we did this week, not because they're not real, but because you're the God that can handle them all. So we trust you. We place everything at your feet, and with open hands, we are ready to receive your word, and we say, have your way today. Have your way, Lord, so that we may glorify you better because you're worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our God is worthy of worship. Yes? So we're going to start in John 4 this morning. And if you feel the way I do about John 4, you know exactly what's in John 4. And this is the famous passage of Jesus and the woman at the well. And Jesus, he says some revolutionary things about worship and this passage. So just settle in. We're going to read the whole account. So he, Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. 
And he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you have is now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Okay, wow. The Father is seeking worshipers. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. That is an awesome passage. Do you want to be a true worshiper? I want to be a true worshiper. And there's a common reading of this verse that the true worshipers are Christians, those that follow Christ, and that the spirit right there, spirit and truth is the Holy Spirit, And the truth is when we worship God correctly, rightly, sincerely, and that is not wrong. That's not a wrong reading because only by the leading of the Holy Spirit can we even begin to worship God, right? Because the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. And so that is right. But yet... There's a tugging in my spirit that tells me we've only scratched the surface if we stop there. So you can receive scripture at face value and it will be beneficial to you because the word of God does not return void. Or you can meditate on that word, that verse, You can study it more deeply. You can invite the Holy Spirit into your understanding of that verse. And then you listen for his utterance and his leading and his application for you. And then that verse becomes rhema. Rhema is a very special thing. This is the word Jesus uses in Matthew 4 when the devil is trying to deceive him into rebellion. And Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every rhema that comes from the mouth of God or every word that comes from the mouth of God. But rhema is not just any word. It's a living word. It's alive. And I know you've probably felt like this before. Have you ever heard a verse 10 times, 20 times, but then on the 21st time, it's like, boom, like the Holy Spirit just reveals a whole new aspect of meaning to you. And it's like looking at a prism and seeing a color you never saw before until the light hit it at just that direction. And God just reveals something fresh and new. This is rhema. This is because it's a living word. 
And Hebrews 4.12 tells us this. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is what? Alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And boy, do we need this kind of rhema because we always, we are always in the process of becoming more and more in the image of the Lord. None of us are done, right? We're always calling on him and yielding to him and letting the spirit sanctify us. And so we need that living word to change us and address the things we need to change and inspire us to do the things that we need to do. And then John 1 explains how the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. So how cool is it that Jesus is the word? Jesus is the word. So of course, Jesus speaks a living word word to us. And that word is so deep. Friends, the word of God is so deep. I think of Jesus like he's an ocean of revelation. He's an ocean of revelation. So should we just like sit in the boat and look out and be like, look at Jesus, look at you walking on water. How cool are you, Jesus? Way to go, Jesus. I love that guy. And observe it and take note of it? Or will we be like Peter who sees Jesus and dives in? He wants to get out because Peter wanted to be as close to Jesus as he could possibly be. And disciples don't just observe. Disciples follow and do likewise, right? We're followers of Jesus, not observers of Jesus, So, if Jesus is in the water, man, let's get in the water. Let's let's get in the water. Let's dive in. So, let's look at this verse, back to this verse. When Jesus says, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. Jesus is stating the time has come to end the old covenant and begin a new covenant. These are new covenant words. And to understand the life-changing significance of the new, we need to remember the old. Do y'all remember the old covenant from your old covenant survey class 101? We're going to do a covenant recap. We're going to do a quick covenant recap with pictures. Okay. Genesis 1, God creates the world. Remember? God said, let there be light. He creates the world. Okay, Genesis 2, something interesting happens. God creates a special garden on the earth in a very special place. And in that garden, he puts two trees in the center and places two special people in it and makes covenant with them. Now, a covenant is a partnership where both parties agree to be loyal to each other. One of the most famous covenants of today is a marriage, right? It's a promise. It's a commitment. And God makes covenant with Adam and Eve to rule over creation on his behalf. And they experience the fullness of knowing God. They get to walk and talk with God. Wow. Awesome. Mind-blowing stuff. They're with God in God's actual presence until 
rebellion and covenant is broken. God was doing his part. They didn't do their part. And they are exiled out of the garden, but God promises one to come who will destroy the serpent, the enemy, and redeem us back to God. So then, time passes. God makes a covenant with Noah, and God makes a covenant with Abraham. And then 2,500 years after Adam, when the Hebrews have endured 400 years of slavery in Egypt, Moses receives the law on Mount Sinai, and God's covenant with Moses and the people of Israel include moral and ceremonial and sacrificial laws. This is the Ten Commandments, but it's so much more than just the Ten. And all of these things allow the Israelites to worship God and atone for their sin in the process so that they can have a continued relationship with God. And they put this law in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was this movable tent that the Israelites carried the, the Ark of the Covenant in, which contained the God's instructions and the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets. And they carried it around. They're wandering the desert. They're carrying it around with them until they can come into the promised land in Canaan. And then this tabernacle rests in Shiloh for 300, 450 years. And the 12 tribes worship around this tabernacle. And so as you can see here, there's an, an outer court. People would come and make their sacrifices. And then inside the tent is the inner sanctuary. And only the priests are allowed in the inner sanctuary. And then if you look at the inner sanctuary, you see those curtains. And those were closed all the time. That was the veil. And behind the veil stood the Ark of the Covenant that contained the tablets. It contained a jar of manna. It contained Aaron's staff. Aaron was the first priest, the first high priest of this new tabernacle sacrificial system. And you, you can't go in there, you guys. We're not allowed in there. None of us are allowed because we're all Gentiles. So you, you can't go. It was very sacred space. And so this, for 450 years, they're worshiping God there. And the priest would be able, once a year, to go behind that veil into what they called the Holy of Holies and make the sacrifice for the sins on behalf of all the people. Now, stuff happens... That's how I'm going to summarize it. Read your Old Testament. Stuff happens, and the tabernacle is destroyed. And the ark is captured by the Philistines. And the Israelites demand a king. Because you know what? They're kind of tired of being beat up by all the other nations. They're like, we should be a nation, and we want a king. And they demand a king. And so God makes a covenant with king David. He makes a covenant with David. Saul is first, but God's covenant is with David. And that leads to the Ark of the Covenant being found and brought back into Jerusalem. And then, of course, we know that David's son, Solomon, builds the first temple. 
Now, the first temple is in Jerusalem, and it is opulent, and it is grand, and it is everything that they have ever craved as far as a place of worship. And again, it's the same, if you remember, as the tabernacle. You have the outer courts, and in the outer courts, people would come and make their sacrifices and do their stuff. But inside that building, only the priests were allowed to do their ceremonies and their rituals and their worship. And then inside, you see the veil over here. Past the veil is the Ark of the Covenant, that holy of holies, where only the high priest is allowed and only one time per year. And at the inauguration of Solomon's temple, they did their sacrifice and their ceremony, and it said the glory cloud of the Lord filled it so much no one could see anything else. God's presence on the earth right there. And then after 350 years, aren't these times like astounding to you that this was in, this place was in alive and doing all these things for hundreds of years. After 350 years, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, you may remember him. He destroys the temple and the many people are taken into exile and the Ark of the Covenant is lost. To history, never to be heard from again. And then a hundred years later, Zerubbabel oversees the rebuilding of the second temple. He was the governor of Judea. And then the second temple is built in Jerusalem. It's not as grand as Solomon's, but then Herod comes along. And remember King Herod? He finishes the temple. He makes it pretty grand. And that's the inside. And again, we see the veil with cherubim wings on it. Do you remember the cherubim guarded the garden after Adam and Eve were exiled so no one could get back in into God's direct presence? And so that's the symbol here, just that human desire to get back to the garden, back to the way God intended it. And again, only once a year could the high priest enter to make that sacrifice. And at the time... Oh, the Zerubbabel part will not be on your test. Just so you know, you don't have to remember that part. Everything else will be on your test. At the time of Jesus, the temple is the center of Jewish religious life, and it means everything because what does it represent? God's presence on the earth. It's God's house. It's God's throne room. And the priests of the temple, they devote their lives to the Levitical law and the rituals. And it's where the Jews worship. And it's how you atone for sin. And it's where you gather for festivals and holy days. And it's this amazing, thriving place. But who is not allowed to worship in the temple? Samaritans. Gentiles, of course, but Samaritans. So to the Jews... Samaritans, they married pagans during the exile, and so Jews, Jews considered them theologically and racially unclean. And they thought they're unfit. To, we don't even associate with them. And the Samaritans kind of felt the same way. Well, we're not associating with you either. And so there was a lot of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And there was a common phrase that the Jews used to describe their disdain of Samaritans, and it translates to, we don't share cups. I don't even want to touch the cup you drank out of. That's how much I don't like you. This was a common phrase they used because they thought they were so defiled. So 
Knowing that, look back at Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman. What does he say? What's the first thing he says? Will you give me a drink? But Jews and Samaritans don't share cups. Jesus. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you want, I will share your cup of unrighteousness and I will give you my cup of redemption because I bring a new covenant and it includes you. Praise you, Lord. So the Samaritan woman, she's us. That's us. Jesus. Jesus is talking to us. God is expanding the borders of his old covenant with Israel and declaring that you and I are now included in his redemption plan. It's the whole world. It was the whole world from the beginning, except the world didn't know it. And Jesus is revealing it here. And that Samaritan woman, she's seen as so unworthy. Like, she would never be allowed in the inner courts of the temple. In fact, no Jew that wasn't a priest could enter the inner courts. So there's no hope of her ever coming into the Holy of Holies, right? And then look, the Holy of Holies is standing right in front of her. That's the Holy of Holies, face to face with her. The God of all creation is inviting us into relationship. So what's our response? Deb, come share your word about our response. today now and ask you a question. How many of you have a dog? <laughs> you know, for most of you that do, the image of a dog will bring a smile to your face. Scott, can I just have that slide now? <laughs> Take a look at this. I want you to look at these dogs. Stare at them for just a moment. These are uh, Scott and Mel's Gus Gus and uh, my grand dog Louie. Uh, there's one picture of Max out in Baltimore. But look at the looks on their faces. Look at the, do you see, do you see love in their faces? Do you see expectation in their faces? Do you see adoration in their eyes? Now that you have this visual, I'm going to share a word with you that in the Greek means worship. And that word is proskuneo. You say that with me? Proskuneo. According to the Strong's Concordance, proskuneo means to kiss, as in to kiss the hand of a superior. It's commonly associated with bowing down or lying prostrate on the ground. And some scholars believe, and listen to this, that the word actually is derived from the idea of a dog licking its master's hand in token of reverence. Wow. So that's how we're supposed to come before God, in total adoration. And I want to be able to show God how much I adore him 
more than these animals show how much they adore us. So I'm just going to give you a few bullet points, not to take much time for Mel. But here's a few bullet points about worship that you can take away with you today. Number one, worship is a lifestyle. It's not a momentary action. It's not when we come together to sing a song. Worship is a lifestyle. Authentic worship is about pursuing that which pleases God and not us. Worship encompasses your whole entire being. The second, second thing about worship is that it will still the voice of the enemy. Here's a good little saying. It says, worry can turn into weakness when not countered by worship. The devil cannot stay where worship abides. I know in my own house, when I'm feeling anxious, I have to turn worship on as loud as I can because it will get into not only my mind but my spirit and that's going to drive the anxious thoughts that the enemy's putting in my brain. It's going to drive them out. Matthew 4.10 says in the Amplified, and this is when he was uh, being tempted by the devil, he says, Go away, Satan, for it is written, and forever remains written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The next thing is worship is about servanthood. Worship is about a servant approaching his master. Like a dog coming to his owner, we're very much a lesser being than God. All we have comes from the master, and we approach him knowing our place. You know, have you ever said uh, to any of your kids, uh, he's, he's God and you're not? You know, we have to remember that sometimes. The next thing is worship is about submission. And I know that's a nasty word to a lot of people. But proskuneo reminds us that underlying all of our worship of God should be a profound recognition of our responsibility to be in full submission to the master. Worship is about physical response. In both the Hebrew and the Greek words for worship, we find that worship is directly connected with physical bowing, kneeling, or even lying prostrate on the ground. You know, in our, in our modern mindset, we often overlook the importance of physically responding to God or we let our pride get in the way. So we were created physical beings and our worship should also include the physical. Amen. To restrict our physical actions will sometimes restrict our hearts. Revelation 4.11 says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and for your pleasure they were and are created. We were created for his pleasure. Amen. Amen. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that you were created for his pleasure. And authentic worship is about what pleases God and not us. It's about our lives lived in service to God and our neighbors, lives which are living sacrifices and which are engaged in God's work in the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. And that's my little nugget for you to take away today.
Don't go far, because we're going to worship in a minute. Proscunio is the word for worship that Jesus uses in John 4. This is the worship that he's talking about, that intimate, devoted, adoring, close worship that God deserves, that he wants to have with us. And how can, you know, how can we experience that when we wouldn't even be able to get into the temple? How can we experience that, that closeness? You know that veil in the temple was 60 feet high and about four inches thick? And remember, only one person, the high priest, could even go past it one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it's gilded with cherubim wings to remind us that, hey, this is not a place for you. This is the presence of God. Pretty much keep out all year until that one time that he bids you enter. How can we have an intimate relationship with God when we're not allowed past the veil? It's almost like Jesus would have to tear down that veil and dismantle the whole sacrificial system. Spoiler alert, you guys, that's what he did. He did that for, he did that for us. Isn't that good news? Listen to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve our living God? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what you did. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of, everyone say, new covenant. New covenant. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant, the old covenant. So what kept happening in, in temple and tabernacle worship and the sacrificial system was they started with God's design and instructions, but they would slowly add their own preferences and cut corners or keep things for themselves or allow idols to enter these sacred spaces, and then they would become corrupt. And why does that happen? Because culture is sticky and idols are sneaky. And if you think this is just an Old Testament problem, look around today, friends. Culture's sticky and idols are sneaky. And once your religion is wrapped up in anything except the redemptive and complete work of Jesus, it is defiled. Once our religion is wrapped up in anything save for the redemptive and complete work of Jesus Christ, it's defiled. It is corrupt. Jesus is the truth. 
Jesus is the truth. If you want to be a true worshiper who worships in spirit and truth, know that Jesus is the truth. Colossians 1 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn in all creation, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. I love that verse. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. You know what that tells me? That there's nothing missing when it comes to Jesus. And to add your preferences to Jesus isn't the truth anymore. And to take away things you don't like about Jesus away, that's not the truth anymore either. He is the complete and total truth. We receive all of him. We receive all of him. Paul writes to the church, get this, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Did you know that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God, which is right, so much more profound when you saw the other temples. And now they've been destroyed, right? Because God's decided he's going to rest his presence inside of us. He wants to dwell inside of us. That's proscunio right there. That's intimate. That's an intimate covenant. He wants to dwell in us. But now look what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, where does the Holy Spirit lead us? To Jesus. That's an A. You get an A on your test. The Holy Spirit always leads us back to Jesus. In fact, Jesus says this in John 15. He says, the Spirit bears witness about me. That's where the Holy Spirit leads us. Jesus faithfully obeyed the will of the Father. He sacrificed his life for ours so we could experience relationship with God on a whole new level by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God who always turns us toward Jesus. Wow, I mean the Trinity. Am I right? <laughs> the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then they're like, we and you. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit wants to embrace you in that relationship. What an awesome and gracious God. What an awesome and gracious God. The Apostle Peter writes this. You also, like living stones, the temple was made of stones, but you're living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a royal priesthood. And instead of animal sacrifices of the law, which we no longer need because of the ultimate atonement of Jesus Christ, we get to instead offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So now when I add all of these things up and I read the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, and I take all these verses, here's what I see. I see a royal priesthood offering their bodies as a living sacrifice to God. 
in partnership with the indwelling Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a rhema word. Because sometimes we can read a word and go, oh, worship the Lord in spirit and truth. I do that. Here you go, Lord. Spirit and truth. But do we understand the weight and the gravity of what it means to be a holy priesthood? And what it means to follow the leading of the Lord and all that Jesus has done for us. Our spirits have been invited into familial relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He calls us sons and daughters. I mean, he could call us dogs. He could. But he calls us sons and daughters. And we are sanctified and bid enter the Holy of Holies at any time, friends, because he's here. Because he's here with us. He's waiting for us to enter in. He's always there waiting. And when you understand what God has done for you, that he tore the veil from top to bottom for you, you live differently. You speak differently. You treat people differently. And you worship him differently. If I could have our musicians come up. We're going to spend some time Worshiping the Lord together because, I mean, at Generations, we, may we never be half-hearted worshipers. May we never be critical observers. But may we worship our God like a royal priesthood because we're his representatives on earth, declaring his goodness with everything in us. Do you remember what the psalmist said? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Not because this will earn me salvation. That's not why I praise him. Jesus did that for me. I don't praise him because it's going to get me favor with God. Jesus gives me favor with God. Jesus did everything for us. Do you know why we worship the Lord? Because it is our response to what he's done for us. Can you stand up with me? We're going to spend some time worshiping. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And you know, worship is just that. Worship is just choosing to obey him, to respond to him in obedience out of love and gratitude. Lord, we're so thankful for you. We're so grateful. Lord, we, we come to you with all of our heart and our mind and our strength to tell you thanks, to exalt you, and to make room for you this morning. Hallelujah to our God. Great are you, Lord. Worthy are you, Lord. Lord, thank you for this time of worship. I thank you. This is just the beginning of a new revelation of what we have because of all you've done. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done. Thank you that you are the God who loves us so faithfully. You are the God who never leaves us or forsakes us. You are the God whose mercies are new every morning, whose loving kindness is better than life. And Lord, we receive that. We receive that. And may we be more sensitive to the prompting of how close we are to your presence.
at all times. If our prayer partners would come up this morning, if you have any need in your life that you need prayer about, our prayer partners will pray with you, believe with you. If you have never asked Jesus to be Lord of your life, you can come up and we will pray with you because having decided to follow Jesus is the best decision that you'll ever make. And remember, we're not observers, we're not fans, we're disciples. We follow and do likewise. So this week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And may the Spirit of God be so sparkling and dynamic within you that you can't help but be drawn into his presence and to do exactly what he's leading you to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Have an amazing Sunday.